Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. Uh, but we're on the fifth week of our series that we're, uh, we've, we've titled uh, Retweet. And with that, we've just been looking at the, some of the moments, not exhaustively, not all the moments, uh, but where Jesus directly speaks, references something that was already written in the Old Testament, where Jesus, who was the Word in the flesh, according to John 1, that where Jesus is God incarnate and speaks Scripture that we quote all the time. We quote all his original stuff Jesus said all the time, but there are these moments where Jesus is, is showing a pattern for you and I as followers, as the children of God, to be able to, as we're God's kids, to be able to live life looking at what has already been said, what has already been declared, what has already been accomplished. Because we know there's an overload of information. There's an overload of it. And we could be getting information and content and and be pulled from all sorts of places. And we're going to be making decisions all day, every day. And they're going to be based on something. So you and I, as, as followers of Jesus, as the children of God, we need to be making sure that our decisions are first and foremost led by what God has said. And so our, this whole series has been launching with this concept that, that knowing what God has to say on an issue is vital to making life-giving choices. And we launch with this passage of Scripture, Psalm 119, 105, that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a lamp to my feet. It shows me where I am. We need to know where we are. We need to know what's going on. We need to have a spirit of revelation on that. <coughs> but we also need to know where God wants us to go. So not only is it a, a, a lamp to our feet, but it's also a light to our path that helps us to see where God is taking us, where he wants us to go, where the life is and God is directing us in that front because sometimes this current situation um, doesn't really look like what the end result is going to be. Sometimes the current situation looks a mess. Sometimes the current situation looks like nothing but pain and nothing. But if we will let God continue to work, then there's a beautiful outcome. There's something wonderful that's going to come out of that. And the other day, um, as the School has resumed. Um, then uh, Cutie and I, we like to try to walk after we drop the kids off uh, to school, the little girls off to school, and catch a walk. And one morning this week, um, there was just this tiny hint of fall in the morning air. It wasn't really there, but it was like teasing. It was like there. There was just a little bit of crispness, a little bit of coolness. And man, I tell you what, um, growing up in Texas, uh, man, as soon as a little bit of fall hits, um, well, then, you, you know, you start getting ready for, for that fall weather to, 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 to be able to do all of those different things. My, my, my birthday's in October, so it makes me feel like a kid again. And, and, um, um, but then a bunch of the things we love, Friday night football and especially the opening of hunting seasons. Bless God. 
And so, and it begins to make me think about that, you know, it's not that long and we're going to be able to go deer hunting and do all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and so I understand, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're bothered by that, um, we don't shoot and release. We, we actually enjoy and eat what we, what we take. Yeah, we don't shoot and release. We take them home. And so, and, uh, and so, but uh, we've been uh, hunting for, for years and years, and, and I've tried to take my kids at an appropriate age and take them hunting. Um, uh, but uh, before all of that, uh, when Brooklyn, uh, our oldest, who was on the announcements, our oldest daughter, um, was, uh, was little, uh, I'd be able to, I went hunting, brought my first deer home, had it there, and um, I was really concerned about what my two-year-old daughter, how she was going to respond um, to this, uh, to this, you know, this this dead animal there at the house. Um, and so we were trying to kind of keep her away from it. She ends up peeking out the blinds um, because she's nosy, and uh, and so she ends up peeking out the blinds, and uh, she's like, "Daddy, what's what's that kangaroo doing?" And um, okay, so we we don't have kangaroos around here. Um, and, and that's a deer, and that's, it's dinner, and so, and, uh, and so she was totally cool with it, she was totally cool with it, and, um, and so, and that is a, a regular fall part of our, uh, menu at our, at our home, and what was funny is a, a couple of years later, she's about four years old now at this point, and she had not seen the process, she had seen the, the, the deer who, who just looked like it had gone to sleep, she had seen that. Um, but at one point, she comes out into the backyard, and I am halfway skinning this deer. So I hope this isn't bothering anybody this morning. Um, but it's a very different sight um, for a four-year-old. And as she comes out, she sees that. She knows um, that this is part of our diet. She sees this deer, which a lot of people would say was, was you know, a kind of a gruesome sight. And but her little four-year-old mind immediately jumped to the end result. And she comes out there, and I have no idea what she's gonna say. And she looks at it, she's like, Daddy, that deer looks delicious. And I'm like, bam! Yes, yes, train them up right. But the thing is, is that the truth is, is that deer in that moment, halfway skinned, and that it did not look delicious. It didn't. It did look delicious if you looked at that sight. It was gruesome. It was something that was, that was not a pretty sight. But if you knew the end result, if you knew where that backstrap was going to go and what it was going to become, then it begins to look delicious. You're like, yes, in the middle of this process that's not a pretty process, but it ends in a wonderful result. I can see the middle of an ugly process knowing where it's going to go and go, you know what? I'm going to begin to be excited about where this is going to end up, and I'm actually going to call it what it's going to be, not what it is. And we need to be able, the only way we can do that, in the middle of all of the stuff that, that hits our lives and is difficult to deal with is when we know the promises that God's given us. We know the promises because there's a bunch of issues in life that, that they're tough. But God's promise is that it's going to end up in a beautiful result. That God is going to bring about these, these, these things. And we're going to look at some moments where Jesus faced 
some difficult decisions, but held on to what he knew was going to be the end result. We're going to then begin to see where that's mirrored in the early church and in the early, early leaders. But I, I, what I want us to look at is one of the most well-known psalms is this lived out, Psalm 23. And um, the whole thing will be on the screen. It's not all in your notes. Um, but we most, uh, if you've been around church for a while, you know it well. It says it begins with, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's a beautiful thing. Think that you're letting God care for you, lead you, and, and that you're not going to want. It says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. That's a pretty sight. That's a, that's a photo sight. That's, that's, that's something that we want on our, on our, our screensaver, on our computer. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. He, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. That's where we want our, our cabin and our home and, and those kind of vacation places. These are, these are beautiful things of what God does for us in our lives. He, he restores my soul. Uh-oh. Why is restoration needed? You don't go to a brand new house built in a brand new subdivision and, and go, oh man, we can really restore this. It's brand new. It's not out of date. It's not broken. It's not, it doesn't have all that stuff. No. You walk into a, a used and neglected and out of date home and go, okay, I begin to have some vision. I can begin to see where this can go. That's restoration. You see a beautiful 1968 two-door anything from Detroit who's got a little rust and a little neglect. And you say, man, I can see what this Charger could be, what this Mustang could be, what this Camaro could be. And you begin to, because it's got to be restored, man, he restores my soul. He restores our souls because there's points. Our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions. Life begins to beat on it. It's tough. We're tough on each other. We're tough on ourselves. There's an enemy who hates us and attacks us in that area of our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions. But there's a promise that he restores. He restores our souls. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. If his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to a path, what's the, we already know what path he's, he's going to lead path of righteousness, making things right, bringing restoration to those things that are broken, making things right. And he does it for his namesake. Now we begin to get into some of that, why we need some restoration. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is not your screensaver anymore. This isn't that picture perfect place anymore. This is not where you're searching for an Airbnb anymore. This is not the place you want to go. This is the valley of the shadow of death. Where death is casting its shadow. It's looming. It's, that's, it's, it's changing the environment. It's, it's dropped the temperature a few degrees. The, it doesn't feel like the rays of the sun can, can glisten off your skin like they once did. This is not necessarily the place anybody wants to be. But even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. The thing that is wanting to grip you in the middle of that valley walk is fear. It's trying to grip you. That is what, that is the first thing 
If it's that death wants to come in, fear gets its foothold first. And I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. You're with me. Not just in the meadow, not just at the beautiful place where we all want a vacation by the still waters, even in the middle of the hard, ugly moments. You're with me. You anoint my head with, no, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So now all of a sudden, it's not when when the enemies show up, our normal instinct is, oh man, now the battle's on. But we see this, the enemy shows up and it's actually, it's about to be a banquet. All of a sudden, everybody begins to come against you and we want to fight. And he says, no, rest, I'm preparing a table. I'm about to fill your belly. I'm about to make life good. You let me fight your battles and you're just going to end up going, God, you're good. The enemy shows up. So many times we, the enemy shows up and we just get so fearful and wound up. And he's like, God prepares a table in those moments. He prepares, he takes care of us in those moments. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I've got more than I can, can hang on to. Surely goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will dwell. May, even though I'm walk is the current. I will dwell with God. It's a vision. It's understanding the promise, understanding he is with you, understanding that that even in the middle of difficulty, we hold on to the promise of what he has said, and that is what carries us forward. See, knowing the ultimate outcome will carry us through the tough times. The tough times come. Where unknown, unnavigated before times come, and we need to be able to, to trust that in the middle of those, he's there. I love it that the psalmist doesn't go, though, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Where'd you go, God? Where'd you go? He says, No, you're with me. So many times we hit a little stumble, a little, a little difficult spot, and we want to say, God, where are you? He's with us in the middle of it. Jesus promised us that in this world we will have trouble. Why do we act so shocked when trouble shows up? Jesus said it's going to show up. But every time we're like, huh? Seriously? Trouble again? Yeah, no, he says you will have trouble. But take heart. That fear is going to try to come in and rock you. I'll fear no evil. Take heart. Why? Because he's overcome. He prepares the table in the presence of our enemies. And so knowing, knowing the ultimate outcome is what carries this on. Now we're going to see a little encounter here that Jesus has even just dealing with the people closest to him. Let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 26, um, verse 30. It says, and uh, this is where they're there in the Mount of Olives. This is right before um, the betrayal and Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they just had an awesome worship time with Jesus. That is pretty stinking cool. They're there at this amazing moment, just had a worship time with Jesus. They went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus told them, 
this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the, <clears throat> and the sheep of the flock will be scattered, which is he, is, he is referencing Zechariah 13, 7. He says, but on this, he goes on and he says, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He says, you're all going to bail on me tonight. You're all going to punk and run and get out. And, but guess what? Guess what? After I've risen, so there's going to be a death. And then there's going to be a full restoration to his physical body. He's going he's to rise. He says, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. He says, you're all going to leave. You're all going to go. But we're going to regather in Galilee. We're going to reconnect in Galilee. I'm going to go ahead of you, and we're all going to reconnect in Galilee. See, Jesus, not only was he making sure that he stayed focused, that he didn't let his soul get out of control, that he walked understanding that these people who were there pledging their allegiance, they're in the middle of it with him, that they are going to severely disappoint him. But it wasn't disappointing because he knew it was going to go down. So then he began to deal with their disappointment in their self. And he's giving them a heads up. Oh, you're going to do this. And, of course, they'll go on and say, I'm never going to do it. I'm never going to do it. Oh, even if I have to die. And then Jesus has to get real blunt with Peter. You're a, hush your mouth, Peter. And, um, and so they all rise up. Sure enough, they all leave. They all bail. They all run. But guess what? They had that promise. Jesus Knew they were going to regather, and he focused on it, even in the middle of relational disappointment, that there was going to be a point of restoration. And he gave them the hope so that when they failed, that they would not beat themselves up forever, that Jesus had said, no, we're going to regather. We're going to regather. We're going to reconnect. There are these places where we have to understand and see that even though there are some difficult times when we know the ultimate outcome, we can get through those difficult hard moments and so for us this whole series has come down to this one idea of remember what Jesus has said remember what he has said keep retweeting get your retweet on repeat over and over and over just keep it rolling in your mind what Jesus has said, in fact, I think it's pretty cool. Here, let's look at in, in this thing. Um, Mark chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. Um, here, Jesus uh, is finding out what everybody else is saying about him. Um, and then he wants to bring it home to what the disciples um, are saying about him. And he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Uh, and Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then he immediately, they understand he's Messiah. He's the one prophesied. He's the one that it's been written about. Here's the problem is everybody at that point in time ha did not understand what Messiah was actually going to do. They understood the end result that he was going to be king of all. And they thought that when Messiah showed up, he was just going to be king and reign forever from that point forward. But there were all of these other prophetic things that everybody just kind of would ignore. 
that's hard. I don't like that. And they would put them aside about Jesus' suffering and all of those different things. And so as they recognize that he's Messiah, his first thing to do is to reframe their idea of Messiah. So the very next verse, it says, and then he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. These are the people whose opinions were most respected about Messiah. They're the ones who knew all the prophecies. They knew all the scriptures. They knew all the it is written moments. And he's like, they're going to reject him. They're going to reject him. They're going to say that this isn't, this isn't right. He says, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. And it says he spoke plainly about this. It wasn't metaphorical. He, he was being as blunt and as raw and as direct with his disciples as he could possibly be. Why? Because the uh, crucifixion and those moments were going to be very difficult. They needed to stay focused on the end result. That he would rise again. Everybody's going to reject him. He's going to end up crucified. This is part of the plan. This is part of the way this is going to work. But he's going to rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus is saying, and this was so ingrained. It was the old mindset of what Messiah was was so ingrained in Peter that he rebukes Jesus. He's like, Jesus, we're going to follow you everywhere. You're amazing. You're doing miracles. You, you, you got your theology wrong. Let me square some stuff up for you, Jesus. And begins to rebuke Jesus when Jesus was trying to, to frame him up correctly. And Jesus has one of his harshest comments right here. <clears throat> and then, because uh, Peter takes him aside. Peter's trying to have a little closed door moment with Jesus. Pardon us, boys. Um, we got to talk to we got to talk to Jesus over here. Jesus. Um, I hate to tell you that, but you're blowing it. Um, um, that's not the way Messiah's going to go down. I'm not sure where you got this, but you, you're not going to die. Get that out of your head. Um, you're not going to do any of this. And Peter's trying to have it, pull him off and have a closed door moment. And it says, it shows us exactly what goes down. And it says, and then Jesus turned and looked at the disciples. He kicks the door open. He's like, nope, everybody needs to hear this. Peter's trying to pull him aside. And Jesus turns and faces his disciples and makes sure everybody is, is in on this deal. And then he rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. So whether or not they were really in on what was going on, the next thing they know, their teachers just call Peter Satan. And it says, and you do not have, and here is the challenge point for all of us. It's not just Peter. It's not just Peter. Every time where we want to argue with the good that God has for us, with what the scriptures say, this is always our challenge. This is my challenge point. This is every clergy person's challenge point I know. This is every Christian's challenge point I know. Every time we have a hard time with what the scriptures are actually trying to tell us, it's this. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It's our mere human vantage point. It's our mere human concerns 
that make us view the scriptures wrong. To not take them serious to the point of rebuking Jesus when Jesus is trying to do that. Let's be honest. How many times have we... Have we seen something in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit begin to make it come alive and we go, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, what about this? What about this in this person's life? They were a good Christian and this is the way that went. Yeah, what about this? What about this time that this happened? What about, yeah, what, yeah, but. It's the same thing. We're, we're rebuking the Holy Spirit with our yeah, buts. Over and over and over again. We have to let God's word begin to speak to us and reframe us. Jesus was trying to reframe so that they would understand what was actually ahead. Because it was imperative that they understand it. Because the crucifixion was going to be hard on everybody. Yes, it was hard on Jesus. But it was hard on those that loved Jesus. And they need to know that there was a good outcome coming. So he spoke very plainly about it. So then it happens. Sure enough, everybody bolts, everybody leaves, everybody goes. Jesus is arrested, has the mock trial, ends up being crucified, is dead, and is buried. And then some of the women show up on the first day of the week to go and finish prepping his body. And then Luke 24, verse 6, they show up to find Jesus, and he's not there, and they're looking. They're feverishly looking And here an angel speaks to him in verse 6. And he says, he is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. And then here we go. Direct quote. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. He must be crucified on the third day and be raised again. A direct Jesus quote. We got an angel pulling a retweet of Jesus right back in them. Scroll back, people. Look at Jesus' tweet history. Here it is. He says, this is exactly what's going to happen. What a cool thing is that right after the great news that he's risen, right after that great news, the first words spoken to human ears is remember Jesus' words. Right after the good news that he's, that he's still alive, the first word spoke to human ears about that whole thing is remember his words. Remember his words. And then begins to quote him. Folks, we've been given his word to build our lives on, to direct us, to give us hope in the middle of the difficult times, to lead and guide and direct us. But for to do that, we have to remember what he said. And remember, you got to spend time in it, but... But we've got to think about what he has said. And then verse 8. Ha ha ha. They remembered his words. They remembered. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. This isn't a, a deviant. This isn't a plan failed. This is actually a plan completed. He's, this it went exactly the way he said it was going to go. So now quickly what I want us to see is is that your faith, your faith in what God has said can impact everyone around you. You hanging on to it in the middle of a storm can impact everybody around you. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 27, and we're going to look at a 
place where Paul is under arrest. Um, he had, he had uh, said that he wanted to be tried by uh, the emperor himself, by Caesar himself. So he stays arrested and he's being hauled to Rome so that at some point in the future, he can stand before the emperor. He can stand before Caesar and give an account of why he got arrested way back over in um, Jerusalem, by way back over in a place where he was, he was attacked. And so now we're going to look um, at Acts 27, and he's in the middle of this voyage on this trying, them trying to get prisoner Paul to Rome. Um, we're going to look at Acts 27, verse 21. Um, and actually, just a real quick deal. Paul gives them a heads up, gives the, the guy in charge of everything, gives the sailors, hey, it's a bad idea. This, this is not going to end well. And, of course, he's a prisoner, they're, they're, they do this all. They do this for a living. So in their normal stuff, they ignore Paul, who was giving them a, a heavenly insight that this was not a good thing. But they ignore him. So then, verse twenty-one, it says, "After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, because things were not going well, men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete." Okay. Um, so therefore, sometimes it, I guess it's okay to say, I told you so. You know, maybe so. Paul did. Hey, I told you so. Um, so, but men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves and the da- this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Let's pause right here. This is a brilliant Paul insight. His first thing on his mind, connection with God, is the God to whom he belongs. The second point is whom he serves. Your point of service comes out of your point of belonging. You have to understand, God's most important thing to God's, on God's mind is you belonging to him, not you serving him. Your service comes out of your belonging. And Paul understood that it's the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. But the serving comes out of the belonging every time, every time. Side note, there you go. Um, Of whom I belong and of whom I've served uh, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Why would God have graciously given Paul the lives of all who sail with him? Because Paul was praying for everybody on board. Paul didn't just care about himself. God, get me out of here. These people are stupid. I told them not to. Just get me out. Just get me out of here. Save my skin, Lord. Save me. Paul was interceding for everybody who ignored him, thought his advice was stupid, who didn't listen to him. Paul was interceding and praying for all those around him. He was low man on the deal. He was a prisoner, and he was, he was interceding and praying for the lives of those who held him in prison. He was interceding and praying. He prayed for the lives of the other prisoners of who knows what they had done not just been accused of some sort of heresy by, by the Jews and been thrown into that. that he's in interceding for everybody. And the angel says, guess what? I'm going to give you the lives of all of them. Everybody is going to live. Everybody's going to live. 
He's gonna give me the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he had told me. Everybody else is freaking out that they're gonna die, and Paul says, you're not gonna die. You are not gonna die. There are times where you need to be the voice of faith in somebody else's life, whether they've ever listened to you or not, whether they've ever taken your counsel or advice or not. There are times where you're like, you know what? I've prayed on behalf of you, and I believe you're gonna live. I believe God's got better days for you than to go down this way. I've got, and I'm gonna hang on to that. And Paul did that. He says, but nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Well, that's not fun. Nobody wants to have a ship crash, a shipwreck. Nobody wants that. But he says, not all of us are gonna live, but that's what's gonna happen. We're We're gonna wreck. To go on to verse 27, it says, On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land, and they took soundings, and they found that the water was about a, <clears throat> a 120 feet deep, and a short time, time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep, so it's getting more shallow, and fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight, in an attempt to escape. So some of them, Paul's already said, I've prayed for all you guys. God's given me the answer, you're all gonna live. Some of them were like, who cares, Paul? Um, they, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were gonna lower some anchors from the bow. And they're like, we out of here. And they're lowering it. And they're going to take the lifeboats and they're going to go. And then Paul said to the centurion, the head guy in charge of everything, says, and to the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. It's imperative that we all get through this together. And look at this. They took Paul's word. They took Paul's word. It says, and so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Here it was, the thing that they were hanging on to, their plan B, was actually a part of what was sinking their ship. There are times that your plan B is part of the problem. And you need to let that get away and you need to focus on the, on, clearly on the promise that God has given you. Your backup in case, what, in case this trust in God thing doesn't work is sinking your trust in God thing. You need to focus. You need to focus on what he has to say. And as bold of a move as that is, they cut the lifeboats and let them go away. Say, we're going this the way God said this is gonna go. And they went that way. And it says, and then the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land, and the rest were to get there on planks or any other pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land safely. Everyone lived. They shipwrecked, and everyone lived, just like the angel had spoken to Paul. There are times where you and I we have to hold on to what God has said is gonna be the, the good outcome in the middle of a painful, difficult circumstance. Nobody wants to be shipwrecked, but to be able to live on the other side of it, that is what, this is, this is what the hope is about. 
Nobody wants to have to have their soul restored. But guess what? If things break, the fact that we've got a restore of our soul is a beautiful thing. And the fact that just because your mind, your will, and emotions have been beat down, it doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to be the rest of your life. That he's going to restore, he's going to bring things around and be better than before. So as we wrap this up this morning, I, need, I want you to understand that our bottom line is this, that God gives us the pre-tweet. He tells us in advance so that we won't retreat. We have to stay the course. We have to do this, and God's promise will carry us through. See, God loves us, and he has given us his word, so we want to know what he has to say and to choose life. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.